Lord, we thank you so much for our children. We thank you, uh, God, that each one of us was one or is one now. And so uh, we can all relate to this passage, and we ask for your spirit to speak to us, to glean from it what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we have our uh, middle school and high school students joining us. They're actually in the balcony, so that's my peanut gallery this morning. Um, I did not uh, change my sermon because they're in here to include, you know, fart jokes and those sorts of things. I just, I don't know how to do that. So um, I'm going to just preach to you guys just like I do everybody else. What does the Bible tell us about children? Uh, let's start by taking a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now you notice that uh, there isn't anything about age here. Uh, there are people over 18 who have not given up their childish ways, who still speak, who still think, who still reason like children. So this is not an age thing because all of us are children of someone. You know, when we had a Taekwondo ministry going on here several years ago, um, I had, uh, for each belt, the children had to memorize Bible verses. So for their test, for each belt, they had to memorize two verses. Some of you guys were in there um, way back when. And so the very first verse was Ephesians 6.1, which is, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And so it was a great outreach because what parent, whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not, wouldn't say, yeah. Yeah, do that. Obey. And then it goes on to say in verse 2, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Where is this line where a child becomes an adult? Now, we will always be offspring of our parents, but adulthood doesn't come with age, but when an individual is independent of their parents' resources and is established in their own self-sufficient way. So you are still considered a child under the jurisdiction of your parents as long as you are dependent on them. It's not an age thing, and I think Eastern cultures are a little bit closer to this idea that you, know, you live in your home until you're out and then you're off of the jurisdiction of your parents. So, so when we look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So if you're 50 and you're still living at home with your parents, then this is for you. This is still for you. Now, of course, this is different if your elderly parents are moving in with you or your sickly parents are moving in with you because they, they need you to care for them. But, so when we become their caretakers, but if the parents are the ones paying the bills and the children have moved in with them or you still live at home, then verse 20 is still talking to you as a child. Now our society has an, a, an age attached to adulthood. We, we say you're an adult when you're 18. Uh, I personally find this kind of strange that this age marks adulthood mainly because you can serve in the military and you can vote at 18, but you can't have a beer. So you're old enough to vote for who's the president of our country, and you're old enough to risk your life for that country, but you can't drink fermented grain or fermented fruit. And so that just plays with me. 
The Bible doesn't define it this way. So the, the Bible, it's not an age thing. It's a maturity thing. So when people argue, you know, the Bible is just too strict and it's not logical with these instructions, I would shoot that back and say, that what about the age of adulthood in our society versus what the Bible is saying about what an adult is? Now, what else does the Bible say about children? Here's another thing where the Bible differs from society. The Bible says that children are sinful. So Anthony is correct in a way. This is also why God has made them so cute. Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We were all born with a sinful nature that moves away from what God intends in regards to wholeness, in regards to purity, and everything God hopes for us to experience. You know this. You don't ever have to teach a child how to lie. You never have to. You don't ever have to teach a child how to steal. You don't ever have to teach a child how to assault someone. Like, you don't have to teach any of those things. Now, some parents may teach them how to be better at those sinful things, but it's already in their nature. You don't have to teach those things. You have to tell them, don't hit. Don't take that. You, you have to say, tell the truth. You have to teach those things. That's, we do that. We teach truth-telling. We teach generosity. We teach kindness, patience, gentleness. We need to teach those things. I've said this before, if you don't believe me that children don't have a sin nature, all you have to do is volunteer for the infant-toddler ministry. That's all you have to do. Just, just one time. Again, irresistibly cute. So cute. So precious. But you can't let that adorable cuteness fool you. They're, they're savages. You know, whenever I, I don't have to preach or I'm not guest preaching elsewhere, you can find me in the infant-toddler ministry. That's, that's probably where I'd be. I, I love babies. Um, yesterday we had a leadership training, and I get, got to hold Silas uh, for a while, and that was like a really huge joy for me, and, and that was great. But because I have four children already, it serves as a wonderful reminder that our home has enough sin inhabiting inside of it. Like, so after I, I've served in that ministry, I'm good. Like, I'm good. I, I'm, not, I'm not thinking about babies. Now, of course, there's some joking attached to that, but, but there's also some truth attached to that. We are born with a sin nature. Of course, our environment influences us, but the sin nature is already there. There's something else that we're all born with and is in all children, and it's this. It's something that Susie mentioned inside of her video. It's immaturity. That, that's what children are. They're immature. Children are foolish. That's why they need us. That's why they need us as parents to direct their ways. This is why children need guardians. This is why children need parents. Children aren't born wise out of the womb. They're not born mature. That would be really, really scary. What's that? There's a cartoon. Stuart? Is that his name? 
Scary, right? Scary. So it's our responsibility to develop them into these wiser, more mature people. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. So folly can't be separated from the heart of a child. It's mixed together there. They act foolish. And we see this when we're at restaurants or grocery stores or any place where children are at. And, and much of this has to do with the lack of discipline from guardians and parents who, who leave the kids to do whatever they want to do because there's folly in there. So they're going to do those things. Proverbs 22:15 carried on says, But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Children need the discipline. They need the direction. They need correction. And they need guidance. Because the folly is bound up in their heart. And, and they, they can't be left to just raise themselves. Proverbs 29:15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. They need us. They need the guidance because they have these rebellious hearts. But it's, it's not up to the child to raise themselves. It's the responsibility of guardians. It's the responsibility of parents to raise up their children. And as the child matures, then they can take on more and more responsibilities. But you don't give those responsibilities prematurely to children until they're ready for those things. Think about this. If children are left to eat whatever they want, do whatever they want, what would happen? My 12-year-old's my choices will be very different from my 10, 8, and 5-year-old's choices. They'll just be very, very different. My 12-year-old will choose foods that are nutritious for her health. She has the discipline to cut out sugar from her diet. She has the discipline to exercise. And again, this is not anything that my wife and I have even suggested to her or told her anything. This is just something that she's kind of done on her own. She's decided to do this just kind of learning. And we support her. We support her in those choices because we agree that those are good, wise, mature choices. Now, my five-year-old, I don't support. <laughs> It's not that I'm not a supportive parent, but I don't support those choices. Those choices are not good because she wants candy. That's, that's what she would want. And if there's a choice between a bowl of salad and a bowl of candy, she's no different from a lot of other kindergartners that will choose candy. We teach them what's good for them. We teach them what's wise. And the choices that they make are to be appropriate for their maturity level. If I had all four of my kids plan their own meal plan for the week, my older kids will have a healthier meal plan than my younger kids, no doubt. And it's similar for many things in life where we've had the years to, to guide them on decision making, on making choices. I don't have to harp on my 12-year-old to do her homework and to study for tests. I don't have to do that anymore. We, we, do we? Okay. We've, we've disciplined her to do that. I don't have to do that with our 10-year-old. I don't have to teach her how to study. 
I don't have to teach her how to do her homework. We're, we're still working with our eight-year-old. It's still a process there, but she's really close. I think next year, that's, that's done. My five-year-old's going to need a long time. She's going to need many years. And it's not something that just happens. We have to invest that time into teaching her. So guardians and parents, we, we need to speak and we need to teach wisdom. We can't abdicate that to our schools or tutoring programs or something else. Some, our responsibilities, those are ours. And our children need us to teach them as appropriate to their maturity level. How many children want to get educated? Young children. I'm not talking about like you've taught them and then they learn the value of it and then they want to learn, but, but just young kids. You know, I, I, my five-year-olds, all four of them when they were five, none of them woke up to school. Um, they did for like the first three days. Yeah, you go to school. Fourth day, I don't want to go to school without fail. Right? That, that's just how they are. They don't, they don't want that. They'd rather play. They'd, they'd rather do other things than learn how to read or do arithmetic. How many children want to go to healthcare procedures? They don't want that. They just need that. Yeah, hey, adults don't want to do that either, right? I mean, we don't want to do that. Who wants that pain? Who wants that discomfort? But it's it's good for us if we want to live healthier. So here's an interesting thing. We don't tolerate our children being uneducated. We don't tolerate our children being physically unhealthy. Why in the world would we tolerate them being spiritually unwell? Why would there be any different standard there? Because you wouldn't leave their diet up to them. You wouldn't leave their health up to them, their education up to them. So why would there be any difference in standard for their spirituality and how they're doing there? Because I find it strange that a lot of parents, when you ask them, oh, um, what, you want to bring them to Sunday school, you want to bring them to children's ministry, you want to do this, you want to do that, in regards to their spirituality, then the parent all of a sudden says, it's up to them. But you, they don't do that when it comes to food. They don't do that when it comes to education. They don't do that on other things. Now, ultimately, yes, it is up to them. But when you are shaping them, just like in education or diet or anything else, is it really up to them? Is it up to a four-year-old on whether they go to church? I don't think so. They go to school, and it's not up to them. They go to the doctor, and it's not up to them. You, as the parent and the guardian, are making that decision for them. So it's the same thing for spirituality. We have a role when they're children to shape them to be a responsible 12-year-old, 14-year-old, 18-year-old. And then when they become independent of us and they're on their own, and as long as you depend on your parents for resources, then Colossians 3.20 applies to you. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We need to uphold our children in all aspects of their life, not neglect any part of it, to uphold them to Christ. One of the challenges that we have as guardians, as parents, is that authority is often a bad word in our society. 
there's a, this knee-jerk reaction to this word authority. And we don't like people to tell us what to do. Because how often do you hear this? Don't tell me what to do. How often do you hear that? There's this resistance to authority, and often it's even worse than resistance because it's a, a complete disregard for it. Because at least in resistance, there's something to actually talk about, that there's an interaction in the resistance, and we're acknowledging each other's existence. But when it's just completely disregarded, it's like the child has become this virus to, to the guardian or to the parent and is just using that parent or guardian as this host. And whenever they've used them all up, then they've kicked them to the curb to look for another host. It's challenging as a parent to know when to let go, isn't it? This is tough. Children who want to live as, a, as adults when they're not. Children who want their freedom to do as they want, but they're not quite at that place of independence yet. And it doesn't help that our society is so confused about identity. We don't even know who we are anymore. And on top of that, society is telling people to determine for themselves who they are. When, when many people haven't had the direction and the guidance to show them who they are. And so it seems that people trying to find out who they are are more and more confused. And in that quest, they just become more confused. And it seems that we're more confused about identity than we've ever been before. That these questions have never been resolved in our heads, such as, who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Where am I going? And all of these questions about identity, when, when you'd think that after all these years of human existence, we would have figured out these big questions by now, but we haven't. We're asking the same questions. The second leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 34 in the United States, according to uh, CDC, is suicide. That's the second leading cause of death in all categories for ages 10 to 34. Now, suicide is intentional. It's the leading cause of death, and it's intentional. And so what's going on there? Why is that happening? And it's not that suicide rates have dropped in the last 30 years. They've actually stayed about the same, or they're, tick they're ticking upward. Why is this? We need to invest into our children to let them know you are a beautiful creation of God and I'm here for you. Like I'm here to invest into your life and to guide you into this life, to love you through this life. And so those in our middle school and our high school, I just want you to know that anytime you reach points where you question your identity, that you can always reach out to us, that you can ask us, that we're going to encourage you, we're going to support you as a church family, that we're here for you. So whenever you're having those sorts of doubts or dark thoughts or anything like that, that yes, we encourage you to reach out to your parents and we encourage you to reach out to your youth leaders. And if for some reason you can't, 
You can always email or text or do something anonymous with those in, in the church body here. You can fill out a prayer card and, and put that in there. We just want to let you know that we're here for you. We need to invest into our kids. And so I'm hoping, you know, through training and things of that nature that we, we, we train our student leaders to be able to identify these things with our kids that you as parents are, are getting what you need and if you don't have what you need, we have some really, really great resources here at the church in regards to people, people who are in this line of work who can help us uh, train everybody else. That we, we can recruit them to do these sorts of things for us in regards to counselors and social workers and teachers and people in our own body. And we want you to encourage you to reach out to friends, to reach out to leaders, to reach out to people in your support network that we're here for you whenever you need us. Now, I realize that there may be division between children and parents, children and guardians. I, I realize this. Now, for some, there's a separation from parents that's necessary, and you're with a guardian. And don't go about your challenges alone. Let the church family support you. And, and for those of you who can reach out to your guardians, to your parents for support, that, that's wonderful. And it doesn't have to stop when you become independent in terms of what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says also. Proverbs 23:22. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. There's a lot our parents can offer us in their old age. There's a lot of wisdom. The scriptures tell us to honor our fathers and our mothers in the commandments. And, and that is speaking of a relationship between parents and children, regardless of age, regardless of independence. Honoring our parents is a way to please the Lord. Submitting to our parents in obedience is pleasing to the Lord. Now you think about this. Think about Jesus. Jesus Christ. He himself, who is son of God, submitted himself to Mary and Joseph, earthly parents. You recall the story when um, Jesus stayed back during the Passover. And he was there. His parents didn't notice he was gone, traveling back to Nazareth in this huge caravan. They finally notice. They go back searching for Jesus. This is three days later and they go back to Jerusalem and they're in this great distress and they finally find him. And then Luke 22 Verse 51, it records this. And he, Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And this is Jesus, the Son of God, who was submissive to Mary and Joseph. And here's something that we can think about. It wasn't just in action. That Jesus was also submissive in attitude. Because we all know what it's like when you tell a kid to do something and they do it but they slam the door behind them while they do it, or they throw something down, or they like, or they do other things. We all know that we can obey in action, but where's our heart? We're the same way. God, I will do this, but man. And we please the Lord in our actions, but what's happening in our spirit? You know, what's happening inside there? Do, do we have a spirit of obedience? Do we have a spirit of submission? Again, this, 
responsibility isn't just on children. As parents, are we creating an environment for them where they can communicate with us openly? Where our children won't feel condemned and judged when they're honest with us? And so, yes, there are consequences for disobedience. There are consequences for different actions and what's happening. But have we created a safe space there where they can still share that with us and they're confident that I'm going to be restored with my mom. I'm going to be restored with my dad. I'm going to be restored with my guardian. My relationship with them is going to be reconciled so that I know that love prevails even over these decisions that were made. Are we creating that? And so verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And I know that as children you're thinking, everything? Now here's the difference. Everything is not anything. It's different. So if parents tell you to do something that is contradictory to something that pleases the Lord, then no, you don't have to do it. You're like, yay! Everything speaks of things that please the Lord. Everything that pleases the Lord is what you're to be obedient to. Right, so please don't take me as an expert child or an expert parent. I, I, I'm working on that still. I, I have a lot of things I need to work on. I've only been a parent for 12 and a half years. Some of you have been a parent much longer than I have. And my attempt is at sharing what the scriptures teach. I'm not sharing as an expert at all. Because I'm, I'm attempting to live these things myself. And some days I'm better at it than others, and some days I'm not. And so there are some here who have broken relationships with your parents, or you have broken relationships with your children. And in some case, it's, it's for the best. And your situation is what's best for you and and. That's how it is. And we as your church family want to support you in your current living situation. And that's, that's what it is. Now there are others where there needs to be some repair between you and your parents and, and you and your children. We, we want to pray with you about those relationships. Many of you do know my story between me and my, my father. It was broken for a really long time. I was estranged from him for eight and a half years where we didn't talk. And then some of you just met him last week. He was in the back pew with my mom. Um, so we, we've reconciled. We've restored our relationship. He, he came to visit my family. And the thing is, is it wasn't like that 20 years ago. It wasn't like that when I, before I entered ministry. And I needed help to get to a place of recognizing that I had an opportunity to honor my father, to listen to my father, to obey my father, to submit to my father. And that was a really, really, really difficult thing for me to do because I was very hurt by him. I was very hurt by how he treated my family, my sister and my mother, namely. But I did have a mentor in my life who helped me through all of that, who prayed with me through all of that. It absolutely changed my life. And I'm confident that I'm in ministry today because of what happened 20 years ago. That, that's the only reason why. And if someone were to ask me, like, what was the most influential thing? What was the most revolutionary thing that ever happened in your life? It was that moment where forgiveness happened for my dad. 
And it was really a miracle. And so maybe there's a miracle in store for you today where you're thinking, there's no way. There's just no way. Going to verse 21 here, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now all of the duties and the rights in the scriptures, as you can tell, are not one-sided in relationships. So whether that's between husbands and wives or that is children and parents, they're not a one-sided thing. That God is giving dignity to everybody there. That children have responsibilities to parents and parents have responsibilities to children just as husbands and wives have responsibilities to one another. One of the wonderful things about Christianity is that it gave dignity to women in cultures that did not extend that to them. Another wonderful thing about Christianity is that it gave dignity to children in societies that did not give children dignity. That the effect on children's dignity was even more pronounced than to women. In ancient Roman civilization, fathers were endowed with a limitless power over their family, especially their children. There was this thing called the patria protestus, or the father's power. It gave them legal rights over children until he died or his children were emancipated from him. Now, what could fathers do? Anything. Fathers could sell their children, he could chain them up and force them into labor. He could pronounce death to their children. He could kill them without any consequences. Children could be discarded. They could be disowned. And if you were a weak or born deformed, you were just drowned. This is how they looked at children. Seneca, the Roman, uh, Roman historian, wrote, We kill a mad dog. We slaughter a fierce ox. We plunge the knife into sickly cattle lest they taint children who are born weakly and deformed. We drown. And this is Seneca, the Roman historian. And so what, what would happen is a baby would be born, the child would be brought, it would be laid at the father's feet. If the father lifted the baby, it was acknowledged, it was received into the family. If the father turned away and left, that baby would be thrown out. There was never a night when there were not 30 or 40 abandoned children left in the Roman Forum. This is William Barclay's commentary. And this is where Christians then step in to care for those orphans. So when Paul wrote this, verse 21, think about this with that in the context. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Excuse me? This is revolutionary. Don't provoke my children. I mean, what are you talking about? I can do anything I want. I can kill them. I can tyrannize them. I can enslave them, chain them. I can do anything I want. And you're telling me I can't provoke them? You're crazy. And he says, lest they become discouraged. And this is making it worse, isn't it? Discouragement? What are you talking about, discouragement? Are you kidding me? Why would I even care? how they feel. And that was the original sentiment of ancient Roman civilization. These kids, they don't last very long anyway, just use them up to work for the family and things like that, and then when they get to a certain age, when they become valuable, then okay. But before that, I'm just feeding them, everything's just going out from the family, and it's not like bringing anything back. 
There's no value there. Today, things have kind of flip-flopped, yes, in sort of ways. It's quite the opposite, where kids rule the household. They rule. And the fathers have little authority. Or in quite a few parts of our cities where fathers aren't even present to guide their children. So, one of the questions I receive is, is this only for fathers to follow because it says fathers? That would be really fun for mothers, wouldn't it? But it's not, right? Because fathers don't provoke your children, but mothers, yeah, go for it. Like, like is it really saying that? Go ahead, moms, provoke them, discourage them. Yay, go moms. It's, it's not a good thing to do to children as a parent or a guardian here, right? So now the key thing to focus on is discouraging our children. That's why we don't provoke them. It's that we don't discourage them. And, and much of this is dependent on our children. Some children need parents to lay off a little bit, and some parents need parents to get on them a little bit more. And when we don't give our children what they need, then we mess them up. Um, I, I have a personal kind of mantra that I have in raising my kids is that um, I just don't want them to have as much therapy as I did. That's, that's, that's just my... I know I'm going to mess up. I know I'm not perfect, right? I know this. I just don't want them to have as much as I've had. So, but kids need structure, right? They need guidance, but, but some don't ever get it. And it's, this is not how we function in the real world, right? We, we need to teach our kids, and if you just kind of let them be, then they don't pick up manners. They don't pick up common courtesies, and that's when we see... Uh, Kids who needed, and sometimes we need to see that parents need to relax a little bit more and not be so uptight with their kids um, because then you notice that in their kids they don't know how to just act normal with their peers because they don't know how to be relatable to them without being controlled by a, a controlling parent. So they don't know how to relate to other kids. And so we really need to take our cues from our kids as to what they need. Do they need more structure? Do they need more freedom? Like, what, what is it that they need? It's not just a formula that's a cookie cutter, that this is how it's always to be. We, one of the cues is, is it discouraging them? Are we discouraging them? And it's not about what's convenient for us in terms of like, oh, that's just my style. I'm, I'm just, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do that. It's what your kid needs. So if they need the structure, then change your style. Or if they need you to relax a little bit, then you need to change your style. It's what they need from us to encourage them to be everything that God created them to be. How are children provoked? How are they exasperated? How are they embittered? How are they ultimately discouraged? How is this? Ask my kids. No, I'm kidding. I'm so kidding. I really do hope that I'm not discouraging them. This is something that I try not to do. I try not to provoke them. I do joke with them a lot. I do joke with them. But sometimes I do take it too far. And how do we provoke them? How do we provoke our kids? Sometimes some of us are just too strict. Sometimes some of us are just too loose with things. So... Some kids are so restricted that there's little to no freedom in their life, and others are so free that they're just crazy wild. 
And it's not a question of love because I think both sets of parents and how they parent on these two extremes, they, we all love our kids. It's not about love. But sometimes the love is just misguided. And so how do we prevent provoking children? Here are some questions to ask how parents provoke their children. I have seven thoughts. The first one is to ask yourself, is it cruel? Is it cruel? So in disciplining your kids, is how you're doing it cruel? Because some people take the sparing the rod too far, taking it too far. And sometimes the punishment is too harsh for what happened. And the cruelty isn't just a physical cruelty. It, it can also be a verbal cruelty. Because sometimes those words are way more hurtful than what you can do to them physically. They cut a lot deeper. So it, is it cruel? A second thing to think about in terms of provocation is, does this make them feel unwanted? Does this make them feel unwanted? And this can come in the form of just your absence, that you're just not there. And it's not just a physical absence, but when you are there physically, you're not present for them. You don't have things to talk about with them. You don't have things to say to them. That our actions tell them a lot. Or you start saying things like this. We'd love to do that if it weren't for our kids. Right? We'd love to go to that party if it weren't for them. We'd love to go on that trip if it weren't for them. And so there's this sense that you can start making them feel unwanted that, like, oh, so they would have liked to go to that, but because of me, they're not. So we need to be careful about those things. Here's a third thought. Do we break their confidence? Do we break their confidence? Do we, after they've shared with us their longings and their fears and, and their failures, when they've opened their hearts to us and they've been vulnerable to us, do we hold those private conversations in confidence? Or do we just kind of like broadcast to everybody, share with everybody, and then it comes back around and then they get embarrassed by it or devalued by it, and so they don't want to share those things anymore. And are we, are we not trusting them? Are we reading their emails are we reading their text, their letters, their notes, their diaries, their journals? Are we searching through their rooms and their backpacks? Because it provokes them. It, it discourages them. It, it breaks their trust. Here's, here's something that um, I've, I've shared with my daughters. Again, I'm not an expert. I, I, don't, I don't get all this stuff right. But you know how some people say, like, you have to earn my trust. I don't believe that at all. You have to earn my mistrust. I trust you. You're my kid. I'm leaving everything to you. Like, you're the beneficiary of all my stuff. Like, I trust you. Right? Like, I trust you. But you earn my mistrust. So I don't go looking at my pre-adolescence stuff. I don't look through her emails. I don't look through her texts. And she's going, I ask her about it. I'll see her doing like, hey, what are you doing? I'll do stuff like that. But I don't like sneak around looking at her diaries and things like that. We, we don't do that. I give you my trust. You earn my mistrust. 
Here's, here's something. If there are um, multiple siblings in the home, are we playing favorites? Do we have favorites? And in that having favorites, are we comparing them to each other? Because that, that, that hurts sometimes. Why can't you be as smart as your sister? Why can't you be better behaved like your brother? Why can't you do this? That's a hurtful thing. And God made them uniquely who they are. He didn't make them someone else. He made them them. And so playing favorites, provoking thing. Fifth thing, how do we acknowledge their achievements? So do we, do we withhold praise from them when they're looking for it? Or do we not acknowledge when, when things are really important to them? Like they, they've done something really important and they want to show you and it's just like, oh, another card, another drawing, another, right? And, and I, I get it. I mean, I'm a parent. I've gone through like a fourth five-year-old. And so when she draws these things and she comes like, dad, 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 I have to like father up. Whoa, that's beautiful. Because to her, like that's, that's, she put her heart and soul into that thing, right? She, she, she put a lot of work into that thing. So I got to, I got to parent up. I got to, I got to be there. Or maybe it's when we tell them how much better someone else's thing is at their age and what they do, and we, we minimize their achievement. And so we say things like, man, you know, when, when I was in eighth grade, I, I was doing calculus. Well, I don't know, there's algebra stuff, you know, come on. When I was in school, I walked two miles through snow, and I went like, oh, this, all. even though I've lived in Southern California. So, um, <laughs> Like, we, we just say stuff, right? And we start minimizing kind of like their achievements and what they're doing, what they're capable of. When we need to encourage them, we can't discourage them. Here's a sixth thing. Are our words louder than our actions? Meaning this, we, do we keep our promises? That you've, you've said it, and do you follow through on what you say? I try, Things happen, and I have to apologize for those things. So can we humble ourselves to say sorry, and this is what happened. And in my line of work in ministry, this, this happens, where something comes up where I have to change my schedule. But I try to as much as I can, even in the small things, I, I really try or maybe it's when we tell them how much better you know, that other thing is and that that has value. And so we have to weigh these things. I, I really have to describe to them what, what happened and I, and I have to still hold in confidence why I made the decisions, but I have to share with them that you're still valuable, you're still important, and, and this is why dad had to make this decision and I, I couldn't show up to your thing. Seven, seven, this thought, where are our expectations in, in that are we expecting too much from them? The likelihood of your child becoming a professional athlete is very unlikely. It, let's just face it. So what are we expecting of them? Like, 
hit every ball, make every catch. I mean, come on. It's fun, right? How do we react to their report cards? And here's something. You'll create a really, really neurotic kid if they don't ever please you. They just don't know what to do. Here's the last thing, the last thought. How are we with their freedom? Are we too restrictive? Are we too overprotective? How are we helping them to, to develop that independence, that self-sufficiency? We, we don't want them to depend on us throughout their life. And if it goes on for too long, that we don't let go at the right time or we, we hold on too long, they'll feel that you mistrust them and that's provoking. And it, it, is, it is our responsibility to train, to instruct, to, to give more freedom accordance to the training and the instruction. Those are eight thoughts there. You know, some of us uh, need to exercise more discipline. Others of us need to exercise more freedom. Some of us need to exercise more rebuke and consequences. Other, others of us need to exercise more tenderness. And no matter what we have to do, we need to invest time into relationships. And just as these verses are speaking of um, children and guardians, parents, Think about how often they're at church and if you're relying on the church to teach them all these things. But just how often, are, how, really, how long are they here? Maybe an hour, so 1% of the week? Most of the week is with you. Don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for your patience in working with us, just knowing that we don't have all things together and um, we're imperfect. We ask for your grace to abound in our relationships, in our relationships with our parents, our children. Um, we ask, God, that you would give us wisdom in how to navigate those things in Jesus' name. Amen.